Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Migrant misery in Qatar. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us. Well, it is a wrap now on the World Cup, the successful soccer tournament, at least as far as the Qataris saw it. But it may be a long time before many of us are able to forget all of the terrible working conditions for the migrant workers, the dangers that they faced in building up the stadiums, the highways, the infrastructure over the last decade that made this World Cup tournament possible. And somebody who's been writing about and covering the difficulties facing migrant workers in Qatar for a decade now is Pete Pattison. He's a freelance journalist who writes for The Guardian. Um, Pete, it is striking to, first of all, thanks for joining us. It is striking to hear the Qataris on the one hand say, oh, look, what a wonderful tournament it was. And then you look at the numbers of migrant workers who were killed along the way. Yeah, I mean, there's really been two sides to this World Cup. One side is the soccer. And that's undoubtedly been a, 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 a great spectacle. Uh, and the other side is the men who put this tournament together, effectively the men who built the stadiums, who built all the infrastructure, and who, who, who served throughout the tournament as, as security guards, as uh, hotel staff. Uh, we have seen, the world has seen uh, only the first side, the football, the soccer side. Uh, what I've been trying to highlight, as you said, for almost 10 years, is the experience of the men and women who made the World Cup and, and made it a success. And for a lot of people who don't realize, I mean, Qatar, one of the wealthiest countries in the Middle East, but the migrant workers largely came from very poor nations in Southeast Asia. They were not entitled to the same sort of ordinary housing as the average Qatari. They were essentially warehoused while they were there, making money to send back home. Yes, correct. I mean, Qatar is located between some very poor countries. And it itself has a very small population. And so after the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, it needed to recruit hundreds of thousands of workers to build the infrastructure for the event. And so it turned to its impoverished neighbors to look for that workforce. So particularly countries in South Asia, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and increasingly in recent years, countries from East Africa, particularly Kenya and Uganda. Uh, and these countries are very poor, and therefore workers are desperate for work. Uh, and uh, you know, they they willingly, they eagerly took up this option for work in, in in Qatar because of lack of options at home. And and let me explain just briefly how this works uh, using an example I documented just a few months ago. Uh, one of the major stadiums, uh, soccer stadiums that many of your viewers may have seen, is called Al Bait Stadium. It hosted the semi-final amongst many other matches. And I visited Albate in the summer and I spoke to the men who were looking after the grounds around the stadium. There's some beautiful parkland there. And they told me that every single one told me they had paid huge fees to recruitment agents in their own countries to secure their jobs. Anything from $1,000 up to $4,000, which is a mind boggling amount for someone who is, for example, from Bangladesh. So they arrived in Qatar in debt, deep in debt, and they had to work for months, sometimes years to pay that back. 
And that's difficult to do because their wages are very, very low. The minimum wage in Qatar even now works out at about $1.30 an hour as a basic minimum wage. And remember, Qatar is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And so you might say, well, why don't they just change their job? And despite legislation that should allow workers to change jobs, everyone I spoke to said they could not change their job. Their employer would not let them leave. And then one day I followed their, their, their bus, the workers bus from the stadium back to where they lived. And they really lived on what was a farm on the edge of the desert. You know, appalling conditions, living in small cabins, three, four, five, six men to a room in bunk beds, no privacy, no personal space. And while not all workers involved in welcome construction uh, suffered this kind of experience, many, many did. Uh, and, and that's the memory that I will have of this World Cup. I went to Qatar uh, nine years ago when I was, uh, in full disclosure, I worked for Al Jazeera America, which was owned by the country of Qatar. And I worked for them for three years. And I remember going nine years ago for interviews and meetings. And back then they had been awarded the cup. There was already this sort of discussion about what was going on with migrant workers. And the pushback that you would hear from the Qataris is, no, no, it's not about us not having any sort of regulatory or having basic construction standards or safety protocols. It is these middlemen. Uh, who were trying to essentially take advantage of people who are from these very poor countries. But it seems like, no, it really is something that belongs, the responsibility belongs to both because there really wasn't any sort of basic safety standards or liability issues in Qatar. Yeah, the responsibility, the responsibility runs along a continuum from bending countries, for example, government of Nepal or Bangladesh that allow their workers to have to pay these fees and don't introduce strict legislation to block it. You know, all the way through to construction companies in Qatar, many of whom have international connections and of course to the Qatari government. But I would say ultimately responsibility lies with the hosting government, especially when it has the means, the wealth that the Qatari authorities have. Now, to give them some credit, uh, due to huge international pressure, they did introduce some labor reforms. The most significant ones were the abolition of the kafala system and the introduction of a minimum wage. Now, let me just briefly explain the kafala system. This is a system under which workers were tied to their employer and could not change their jobs without their employer's permission. Now, in other words, that's just a license to exploit. If you're a boss and you know your workers can't leave, why should you treat them well? Uh, However, even though on paper the kafala system has been abolished through this new legislation, time and time again where the people I speak to on the ground say they cannot change their job. They're effectively still trapped, often in very exploitative work. And as I said earlier, the, the minimum wage, the basic minimum wage equates to about $1.30 an hour. Now this is one of the richest countries in the world per capita. And finally, these reforms were introduced 10 years after Qatar won the World Cup, after almost all the stadiums and infrastructure were complete. So whichever way you look at it, this World Cup was built on the exploitation of some of the poorest workers in the world. And the Qataris, I mean, Qatari society, it's not like they somehow try to integrate uh, these migrant workers. They were kept essentially living very separately. There were certain, as I understand, certain parts of Qatar they were not allowed to live in. It seemed like the average sort of Qatari citizen would sort of thumb their nose at these migrant workers as if they were sort of subhuman. Yeah, it's a highly segregated society. The UN Special Rapporteur on Racism, who visited a number of years ago, described it as a de facto caste system whereby people from South Asia and 
Africa uh, did not enjoy the same basic human rights protections as others. As you said, that's absolutely right. There's a law that is a zoning law whereby parts of the country, including almost all of Doha, are off limits to single migrant workers. They cannot live there. And so they are housed in these uh, labor camps. Some of them are absolutely vast uh, in, in appalling overcrowded conditions. And you know, ultimately after 10 years of documenting this work, of 10 years of talking to workers on the ground uh, in Qatar, uh, my, my takeaway, my conclusion is that the Qatari authorities, you know, on the whole, just view these workers as disposable. And in fact, thousands of them died over the past decade in terrible accidents, and there's no really compensation for their families. Has the international soccer governing body or have international authorities and agencies who are in the business of awarding events like this, have they learned anything? In other words, the next time a, 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 you know, a small country gets awarded a World Cup or a major concert series or something that requires a lot of infrastructure, are there now things in place to keep this thing from happening again? Well, you're right. I mean, FIFA awarded the World Cup to Qatar without any due diligence when it came to human rights or labor rights. I don't think the fact that Qatar is a small country should should matter. And, and personally, I think it's great there's been a World Cup in the Middle East. So, but But FIFA has repeatedly said that significant reforms have taken place and that the legacy of this World Cup will be better workers rights. My reporting on the ground you know, raises serious questions about that. And, and, and the question you raise is really important. You know, when the next World Cup is awarded and, and there's some talk of Saudi Arabia being interested in being one of the co-hosts of it, you know, what, what position will, will FIFA take on it? And, and my hope is that whether or not something happens, whether or not there's lasting change for workers' rights in Qatar, at least FIFA and other mega sporting events organizers will think twice about organizing or allowing a country that has a very poor human rights and labor rights record to host the World Cup. And any changes that you've seen in countries like Nepal and Bangladesh and Senegal and places that send a lot of these workers, any new initiatives by these countries to try to protect their workers so that they are not exploited again the next time around? No, generally no. I mean, I lived in Nepal for six years, so I know the country very well. I know the people there very well. And, you know, Actually, a lot of workers were sent back to their home countries just before the World Cup because the government instructed companies to close down their construction projects. And those workers, when they went back to Nepal, first of all, they wanted to go overseas again because they desperately needed the money. But they almost all said they were gonna have to pay recruitment fees again to go overseas. Now, governments in those countries should be cracking down on this practice of, of workers having to pay for their own jobs. That's an absolute labor abuse. And uh, uh, the responsibility doesn't only lie in Qatar and indeed other Gulf countries, but also in labor sending countries. Pete, was it difficult to watch the soccer side of this given all that you've been, all that you know and all that you've seen over the past 10 years? I mean, what was the World Cup over the last couple of weeks like for you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. A lot of people ask me that and to some extent, I think it's irrelevant. What well, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people in the West had this kind of you know, real battle with their Emotion, should we boycott it? Should we watch it? What difference does that make to the worker? For me, the things that matter is, 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 will there be a benefit to the workers? And, and just before the World Cup, I documented a group of security guards who were being paid an overtime rate of about 40 cents an hour. They are still being paid an overtime rate of 40 cents an hour. That's what angers me.
Pete Pannison, he's a freelance journalist who writes for The Guardian and has been doing a really incredible work for the last decade in highlighting the exploitation of migrant workers in Qatar, the workers who built the stadiums and the bridges and the tunnels and the highways and all the infrastructure that enabled FIFA to have the World Cup come off as the soccer success that so many people have described it. But in terms of a human rights success, I think there's a strong argument that it has been an absolute stain on FIFA in terms of the human rights record and the exploitation of workers. But in any case, Pete, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. As so much of the world is paying such close attention to the plight of Ukrainians in advance of the you know, Russia war, um, there are a lot of people, of course, around the world that you know, the world tends to pay attention to. But there's one group that seems to have been forgotten, and that is the people of Armenia who have been suffering mightily at the hands of the Azerbaijanis. And here to explain perhaps why the world is not paying attention and why we should care is Serge. Uh, Tankian, he's an activist and singer. Uh, Serge, I wonder if you can explain, I mean, what you know, the plight of the Armenians sort of overall for people who may not know much about this particular part of the world. Well, um, you know, in uh, 2020, uh, the combined forces of Azerbaijan and Turkey attacked an autonomous region known as Nagorno-Karabakh um, and caused a brutal 44 day war and devastation. There were war crimes committed, there were you know, uh, huge humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, uh, lots of people had to leave their homes, etc. Um, right now, in the autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh, there are 120,000 Armenians, um, basically blockaded by Azeri supposed activists um, for the last 10 days. Uh, basically, on the only road that connects Armenia to um, to Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, they've also cut off the gas line. Azerbaijan has cut off the gas line in the middle of winter to these 120,000 people. Um, they have just reinstated it a few days ago. Um, these are the tricks of a dictator in Baku trying to basically depopulate these areas. Um, it's, it's a form of ethnic cleansing and genocide. And so we want to raise attention about this for people to know that obviously, the plight of the Ukrainians is horrible at the hands of Russia, the Russian war army. And the plight of the Iranians is horrible, right, at, at, at their government, etc. But there are these other issues that are connected to authoritarianism and democracy. Um, uh, Aliyev's regime, Azerbaijan being an authoritarian regime and Armenia democracy. Now, there is some connection here with with Russia and that for many years, it seemed like Russia was acting something of sort of a protectorate for was protecting Armenians, but then Russia sort of lost interest. And Russia started cozying up to the Turks and to the Azerbaijans. And as, and as a result, there are the Armenians, Armenians suddenly without any sort of protection. Correct, um, David, so uh, post-Soviet Union, you know, Armenia was one of the Soviet states, not by choice, but when you know, right after World War One, when uh, it was a choice between the Russians and the Turks that had committed the Armenian genocide, the choice wasn't much of a choice. Uh, Armenia became a Soviet Republic until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in, in the early 1990s, and Russia was uh, basically the security guarantor of Armenia from Turkey and from you know attack, along with the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Um, when this war happened, Armenia Armenians feel like Russia had thrown us under the bus. Um, and the reason for that is basically change in geopolitical positions. Um, because of the Ukraine war, Russia's uh, 
interests are more aligned with Turkey and Azerbaijan because they're using Turkey and Azerbaijan to funnel their oil through Europe, right? They're using Turkish oil pipelines and refineries to basically repackage Russian oil and sell it to Europe at a higher rate without, I guess, you're being hypocritical about purchasing it. They're doing a similar thing with Azerbaijan. Russia actually owns about 20 or 25% of the largest Caspian oil fields in Azerbaijan. And so their interests seem to be aligned and that probably has a lot to do with them abandoning Armenia as a defense partner. There has been some expressions of concern about human rights from Americans over the conflict and Armenians and the treatment by Azerbaijanis. But to your point, it feels like that maybe Europe has been muted or silenced because they need and desperately want this Russian oil. So they're not gonna complain about Russian oil that's flowing through Armenian territory and Azerbaijan and what the Azerbaijanis might be doing to the Armenians. Right, so there's that hush money thing because they they feel like they need the Azeri oil. Although the capacity and the percentage is so low that they're actually getting from Azerbaijan in comparison to the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. That for them to look away from a human rights catastrophe and a possible genocide for a smidgen of more oil from a dictatorship is really very hypocritical and shameful for Europe, obviously. Now Europe actually does have monitors. On, on Armenia's side of the border, and Armenia is asking them to lengthen the you know term of those monitors. Uh, those monitors are basically stopping Azerbaijan from actually uh, attacking and taking over more Armenian territory. We haven't talked about it, but Azerbaijan has taken uh, you know uh, hundreds of kilometers of Armenian territory, proper Armenian sovereign territory, and uh, they're trying to force Armenia to agree to a corridor. Um, where Azerbaijan basically uh, cuts off Armenia from Iran, you know, and you know all of this is based on oil needs of oil and future Iranian opening up, uh, Iran's opening up with their oil and gas pipeline. Uh, they're trying to suffocate a small democracy uh, using brutal dictatorial techniques, and you know, and unfortunately, the world is so busy with Ukraine and with other. You know, catastrophes that it's really hard getting the attention of the media and, and people in power. There's people who know you, um, and there are a lot of people out there who know you as an award winning singer. Um, what brought you to this sort of issue and, and made you think, okay, maybe there's some platform that I have that I can sort of help shine a light on this? I mean, what was that journey like for you? So, I mean, growing up as an Armenian American in Los Angeles in a country where it was a taboo. Recognition of the Armenian genocide was a taboo until 2019 when Congress and President Biden formally recognized the genocide. It made me an activist of, of many different fields and things. It made me basically say, if this is a truth that's being denied for geopolitical interest, what other truths are there out there? Um, and obviously I'm Armenian, so that, that also affects me that my people are suffering at the hands of a you know a basically a centuries old enemy when you know Turkey helped Azerbaijan with the invasion of Artsakh and Turkey has been a large supporter of, of of Azerbaijan no matter how brutal they are no matter how unfair they are um, so it's it's a really hard pill for Armenians to swallow around the world especially families like mine whose grandparents were survivors of the genocide is there a very significant Armenian American community. Uh, there is, yes, um, largely centered around Los Angeles and Boston, yes. 
So, I mean, they're, they're literally, there are hundreds of thousands of Americans who know or have relatives or friends who are suffering right now, who are, you know, never mind dealing with whatever sort of poverty and, and issues of isolation, but are literally being starved to death in some cases because of the efforts by the Azerbaijanis to deny basic food and necessities into Armenian held territory. Correct. So, this blockade that they started. It's you know it's very devious uh, as only a dictatorship could be is they've realized that Europe's not going to put up Europe and the U.S. are not going to deal with more just brutal brutal attacks into Armenia and Artsakh which they've been doing on a daily basis. So they thought what's the best way we can block these people and force them to get out of their own homeland and they thought why don't we send eco activists but they're not really eco activists because their leaders have been proven to be part of the security services of Azerbaijan. And those people are trying, are basically blocking the one road that's connecting Armenia and all of our, you know, Nagorno Karabakh supplies, humanitarian supplies going into that area, basically blocking 120,000 people from food, medicine, and, and basic needs. There are people that are dying because they can't reach certain hospitals and specialists. Uh, children in intensive care, markets out of food. It's getting to be really, really uh, a dire situation. And we really were encouraging nations to consider an airlift, a humanitarian airlift into Stepanagir Airport. Now, the dictator in Baku has basically said any plane going into that area will be shot down, um, which is very interesting. I mean, it just shows the. Um, uh, the type of violence that that Armenia is dealing with, on you know, and 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 trying to make peace with, you know, Armenia has been really on the forefront of trying to make peace with both Turkey and Azerbaijan, um, and you know, they're asking Armenia to give up territory for it. They're asking Armenia to, you know, no matter what Armenia does in terms of peace, you know, they're just being pushed further and further into a corner, and these people in Nagorno-Karabakh are suffering the worst fate. You know, being basically isolated from the world, um, we really need a humanitarian corridor or an airlift, a humanitarian airlift for these people to basically survive the winter. We know that that case has been made to the Biden administration. The Biden administration has people at the State Department who are aware of the situation. Um, but what do you make of the response so far? And 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 is there some foot dragging that you see in the Biden administration? Um, I think Secretary Blinken has been very proactive, actually, having to do with the peace process between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, and you know, uh, things take time for people to react to. Uh, I wouldn't say there is any foot dragging, but I would say that you know, um, but we need to push the administration to to um, not just the U.S. but Europe as well to have a stronger um, you know sanction policy against Azerbaijan. Here's a brutal dictatorship killing people and trying to starve people. And you know we sanction Russia easily. We sanction the Iranian authorities, but here here's Azerbaijan walking away scot-free because they have oil that Europe needs. And you mentioned that the situation is dire. I mean, we're facing you know the brutal winter which is coming. And again, it's not as if there's a you know long stream of supplies or reserves or fuel for the people who were there who need it right now. Correct. Correct. It is a very dire situation. Decisions have to be made quickly and. You know, um, it, it, this this blocking has to end. But ultimately, this also proves that Azerbaijan Azerbaijan has created a humanitarian catastrophe in Nagorno-Karabakh. And Nagorno-Karabakh, the people there can never live under 
the dictatorship of Azerbaijan, you know, basically a racist fascist dictatorship that has basically sponsored what we call Armenophobia, which is basically hating Armenians from really young age. And there's no way these people can live under that dictatorship. They've lived in a democracy under their own autonomous region for centuries. Serge, for Americans who are concerned, what can they do? What can they do to help the Armenian people right now? Um, call your congressman, you know, it's, it's the same spiel, I guess, call your congressman. And build awareness, tell people about it, uh, repost about it, let people know what's going on. Um, so that, you know, in terms of the Armenian genocide, all our activism with the ban myself took decades to, mm-hmm. to, you know, bring forth. But a lot of that was people knowing, a lot of Americans understanding what had happened a century ago. And that it needs to be recognized for Congress and the US president finally to have to do it. Because once Americans know the truth, the government cannot be telling any other story, right? So it's it's all about building awareness, calling your congressman, putting pressure on our governments around the world to help these people. You know, they're 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 going to starve to death. They're going to be you know they're going to be victims to dictatorship, causing you know a humanitarian catastrophe, possibly genocide. There's been genocide alerts by different organizations, red flag genocide alerts having to do with the people in the Arabakh by Azerbaijan. Serge Tonkian, Serge, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate it and good luck to you. Thank you, David. Thank you for the time. I you got it. it. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, Bart Kyle, and the entire team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.